huge number of voters across the country have already cast their ballots. Some of them say that people with guns and wearing tactical gear approached them at the ballot drop location. Others say they Election doubters are on the march. States where Republicans who question the fairness of the last election are on the ballot. Nancy Cordes is and Julie Wise is bracing for them. It's very much a different time to be an election administrator, unlike any I've seen in the last 22 years. Julie would know. She's the director of elections for King County, the part of Washington state that includes Seattle. And over the past two decades, Julie's had just about every job an election person could possibly have. From answering voter questions on the phone, to drawing precinct maps, to processing ballots and more. And the current level of voter distrust makes her head spin. I am often accused of only counting ballots for the Democratic Party candidates. I'm often accused of throwing away people's ballots or disregarding or changing their votes. It isn't just Washington. Hundreds of candidates on the ballot in this year's midterms say that President Biden didn't win in 2020. And that level of denialism is fueling harassment and threats against election workers like Julie. It's gotten so bad, Washington state passed legislation that would make it a felony to harass election workers. Well, it, it's exhausting for one, and it also, I think, feels frankly like there is a war on elections happening amongst the people right here in the United States. Voting skepticism is everywhere, too. And that's been going on for a few years now. We have a company that's very suspect. Its name is Dominion. You can press a button for Trump, and the vote goes to Biden. This is not true, by the way. We have to go to paper. Maybe it takes longer. But the only secure system is paper. Um, Dominion actually uses paper ballots. But convincing people otherwise clearly isn't working. Donald Trump won. I know for a fact there was so much wrong in that we election. Don't call the Democrat machines out on this fraud, that in future elections, they'll, they'll know they can get away with it. We're no longer but even before Trump, Benedita saw this lack of trust coming, and he thought it was going to cause some real problems. I'm Ben Adida. I'm the executive director of Voting Works. <laughs> okay. Thought there's going to be more after that. <laughs> I, would, I, I, I don't know how much. I have a tendency to say too much. <laughs> ben is part election geek, part computer scientist. And he spent most of his adult life studying election security. So I didn't come into it thinking 2020 would be such a traumatic experience for the country. But I did have a feeling that, in general, we needed to do more for trust in, in election equipment. And he's come to the conclusion that just throwing more facts at people who have already decided something shady just won't work. Maybe what you have to do instead is be transparent so people can see for themselves. In France, they have a translucent ballot box. And your vote is in an envelope, and then everybody can see you dropping the envelope into the clear glass box. So there's kind of this public observation of a process. What if there was a souped-up version of that? Ben says if voting in the U.S. has that kind of total visibility, election conspiracies might lose some of the oxygen they need to breathe. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. 
Today, one man's quest to restore public confidence in the ballot box. He's helping create a voting system with a kind of high-tech transparency that will completely change, literally, what we know about elections. I just wasn't proud of what this industry was producing, and I thought that we could do better. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. To understand where Ben Adida is coming from, you have to start with the landscape of the American voting industry. There are only three major voting machine manufacturers in the country now. Dominion, Election Systems and Software, or ES&S, and Hart InterCivic. They're all private companies. They all use their own proprietary source code. And they all do what private companies do. They keep their cards pretty close to the vest. Nothing wrong with that. But in the current partisan environment, that alone has been enough to arouse suspicion. And I decided that we needed to change the incentives that vendors have in this space. Voting Works, which Ben co-founded in 2018, has gone a different route. Just like those traditional companies, it makes voting machines, but it's a nonprofit, which means that its finances and funding are an open book. And I thought that by going about it the nonprofit way, we could hold ourselves to a particularly high bar. And second, instead of proprietary election software, Voting Works voting machines run on software everyone can see, something called open source software, code that is transparent by design. So I'm going to try to I'm going to try to say this in a way that's not completely self-serving. Yes, I think it's obvious to any modern technologist that this source code should be open source. Like this is not this is not rocket science. If someone is worried that a voting machine is programmed to flip a vote to their opponent, no problem. Hire some computer geek and they can go right there and double check the machine's source code and let everyone know what they found. The idea of building trust through publicly accessible code isn't new. Some of your favorite browser and programming languages are open source code. Firefox, Python, Linux, just to name three. Your Android phone, it runs on Linux. And the idea behind open source is twofold. First, it is meant to be collaborative. This is code that anyone can view, anyone can ask to modify, and anyone can share. All that scrutiny has something else built in. It makes it incredibly secure, because anyone who wants to can check your work. You get this complete transparency into how the system was built, but you get just as much, if not more, scrutiny over which parts actually make it into the final product. Ben says the mere fact that people who know what they're doing could be watching makes a difference in the way people behave. Imagine baking a cake with expert bakers watching every step you take. 
Open Source is the coding version of the Great British Bake Off. You're going to be particularly careful about how you bake that cake. Let me make sure I measure my ingredients right. Let me make sure I take the time to beat the eggs properly, like et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If someone takes a shortcut. Bakers, you have one minute left. Someone's going to see that, right? The expert baker is watching us all the time. And so it's not just a question of transparency. That's really important. It's also kind of a, a way to hold ourselves accountable. So that in the end, it really is a very, very good cake. What that means in the context of elections is that just like a contestant on British Bake Off, the voting machine code is on full display. And if you think you spot an error, throw your experts at the source code. And if they have any complaints, you have my email address. I want to hear. In other words, the opposite of the way the election industry does it today. So your motivation was less to address what we're now dealing with, which is people don't trust elections, and it was much more to fix what seemed to you to be a broken industry? I think those two are tightly connected. So that's the first part of Ben's mission, to make all the code that tracks and records the vote completely visible to anyone who wants to see it. Outsiders don't know how you voted, just that you did. The second part has to do with making an election feel the same way it always has. You want users of the system to look at it and go, oh yeah, this is a paper-based voting system, just like the one we used last year. Looks good. Oh, it's a little faster. Oh, it's a little sleek. Oh, wow, it's a lot simpler to use. He set out to build a new voting system that's not only 100% transparent, but also comfortably familiar. It has to look like and feel like a voting system they already understand. If you come up with some whiz-bang, high-tech feature that looks different, feels different, you're making people uncomfortable. So Ben's machines allow voters to mark ballots by hand or by touchscreen. They cast voter-verifiable paper ballots, which is then followed by that sticker that reads, I voted. This is classic voting. Now, Voting Works isn't the only group that has twigged on to the importance of transparency. Microsoft has a program that's using fancy cryptography to tally the votes. Lawmakers have started reaching across the aisle to see if there are other ways to employ open source software more widely. It's not the only thing we need to do, but it's another significant piece of evidence. When we come back, Ben tests his theory in the wild. A real election at small scale. Stay with us. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Ground zero for Benedita's new voting works machines is New Hampshire. David Scanlon is the Secretary of State there, and he says they've been studying open source software as a solution for the black box of voting machines for more than 15 years. New Hampshire is a state that is always in election mode. Our electorate is tuned to this. It's part of our culture, and our elections run pretty smoothly here. Which may be why Scanlon feels comfortable trying new things, like a voting works pilot. Scanlon says people in New Hampshire have made clear they want more election transparency. There is a strong desire to see how ballot counting machines are actually counting 
the balance. And open source software really is the only way that you can do that uh, effectively. So during the midterms, Voting Works machines will be deployed in three towns, Woodstock, Ashland, and Newington. Just a 1,000 voters in each will use the new machines. Every voter will run their ballot through the device. At the end of the night, the state is going to bring the ballots to Concord and in a public session, do a hand count of every single ballot and every single race on each of those ballots. Scanlon says he believes the only thing that should be secret about voting is who a specific individual voted for. Everything else should be transparent. You know, we should bend over backwards to educate the voting population, help them understand the process, the fact that there's many checks and balances in place in the election, and, and, a, and a person in New Hampshire can observe the process from start to finish. That's, I think, if we focus on that, hopefully we can convince as many voters as possible that, you know, everything that we do here is above board. Ben said the pilot is a small test to build confidence. A real election at small scale, so that if something goes wrong, you can address it and it doesn't have a lot of impact because things can go wrong with new equipment. It happens. But this idea that in a real world election, you're going to compare the machine count to the hand count, it's fantastic. While Ben is an open source guy, some people complain about it. In spite of the hordes of people watching over the code and years of checking and rechecking, vulnerabilities happen. The most infamous example of a problem in open source was something called Log4j. It's a new cyber threat that may impact hundreds of millions of tech devices. Without getting into the weeds of it, developers use Log4j to keep a record of activity in an application. And it was a huge deal when the vulnerability was discovered. We're talking about phones, cars, video games, apps, social media, websites, the list goes on. Right away, a lot of people said, see, open source is dangerous. But that's a misunderstanding of what happened. Open source wasn't the issue. The real reason this was a disaster was that Log4j had been so widely used that this buggy software was showing up everywhere. There was a, some work that came out of the uh, DOD afterwards to emphasize that open source is not the cause of problems like this. It's the popularity of that library that was the cause, right? The fact that all these systems were using this one library that had a very, very serious bug. Log4j aside, the trend is toward finding a role for open source software to build confidence in elections. Alaska's legislature is considering a bill that would make open source software, like the kind VotingWorks uses, the basis of its voting machines. VotingWorks machines have already been tested in Mississippi, and now there's this live pilot in New Hampshire. But the facts about what really happened in 2020 all the litigation, all the investigations, all the evidence that was gathered to show that President Biden won fair and square really don't seem to matter. And proof of that is the slate of candidates questioning 2020 results who are running in these midterms, which is discouraging. Because if facts don't matter, why would open source software make any real difference anyway? And Ben has conceded as much. There's no silver bullet. There's no, like, here's the one mathematical proof that everything went well. But Ben says that every data point, everything that people can clearly see with their own lying eyes, helps nudge them away from conspiracy theories. And that's a start. And that's all he can do for now. It's just a lot of overwhelming evidence. It's a lot of individual data points that taken together become overwhelming evidence that things went well. 
After that, common sense has to take over, which is what Julie Wise is waiting for. Ahead of the midterms, she's worried. I've seen friends in the election industry where they're put on websites as well as the home address where they have children and their family at um, with a bullseye or you know, in the crosshair. And in the meantime, while she waits for common sense to prevail, Julie's offering her staff a roster of pre-election training classes. And one of the offerings? Dealing with active shooters. This is Click Here. Open source information can cut both ways. Just ask Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia written and maintained by volunteers. Entries on the site are based on two things, a kind of crowdsourced fact-checking and editing process and faith that people will do the right thing. A group of British researchers recently figured out that in some ways that faith may be misplaced. Kendra Hanna reports. Back when he was an undergrad, a researcher named Carl Miller decided to make a Wikipedia entry, and it has haunted him ever since. Not because it was particularly insightful or got a lot of attention, but for an entirely different reason. It was completely made up. It was a vandalism. It was, it was a long time ago, and I um, introduced a, a, a fictitious figure as the inventor of the butterfly stroke. That's right. He decided to make up a guy and then attributed the invention of the world's hardest swimming stroke to him, just for fun. If that wasn't enough, his Wikipedia entry eventually found its way into the Guardian newspaper. Carl is now embarrassed about the whole thing. Um, I, I apologize to them all. Um, it, it was a ridiculous and stupid thing that I did. So for a brief moment, Carl Miller found himself the purveyor in the dark art of disinformation. Which is ironic, because now he fights it for a living as the research director at the Center for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos in the UK. Information is a, is a theater of war. It's a space that war happens within, you know, which is really what I think underlies the way in which the perpetrators of information warfare think about it now. And one of the world's most accomplished perpetrators is Russia. So when Putin ordered the invasion of Ukraine in February, Carl couldn't help but wonder what kind of information warfare was going on behind the scenes. If I was an information warfare officer, he remembers thinking, why would I bother with Twitter or Facebook? When, when Wikipedia was there, you know, this, this juicy, extremely precious piece of digital real estate. It'd be great cover for information operations because by its very nature, it's collaborative. So anyone can jump in and start shifting the narrative. Carl and his fellow researchers began looking for a specific kind of Wikipedia editor one that used fake identities, personas, multiple accounts. And they started to notice some patterns in a Wikipedia page about the war. Things like... Casting doubt on pro-Western accounts, trying to maximize the objectivity of pro-Kremlin accounts. Um, kind of introducing kind of Kremlin quotations and talking points and press releases. Of course, you know, it's, it's not really disinformation per se. But they were tweaks that would cast doubt on entries that might have contained a whiff of anti-Russian sentiment. And then when Carl and his team dug into those entries... There are, say, two or three editors that continuously add, say, seven or eight of the same URLs. Same editors, same links to state-sponsored websites. All told, they found 86 editors who seemed a bit sketchy. And while Carl can't link them to Russia or any information operation directly, it offends him that someone somewhere is tinkering with Wikipedia 
and doing that in kind of a sinister way. I mean, you try not to be angry as a, as a researcher, but when you see edits that try to minimize the impact of alleged war crimes, they stay with you. What happened to the editors Carl unearthed? Eventually, they were banned from Wikipedia altogether. For Click Here, I'm Kendra Hanna. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories from the past week. The White House hosted an in-person discussion this week aimed at countering ransomware. Corporate executives and leaders from more than two dozen countries around the world met in person to discuss the administration's counter-ransomware initiative. Ransomware actors have been targeting both public and private sector companies around the world for the past year. The second largest public school district in the U.S. was targeted just a few months ago. Nearly 300,000 of its files were posted after the school district refused to pay a ransom. Australia's largest health insurer recently fell victim to a cyber attack, too. The White House said the gathering was an attempt to bring companies and government officials together to try to figure out how to tackle the issue. Microsoft, Palo Alto Networks, Siemens, German enterprise software maker SAP, and cybersecurity firms like CrowdStrike and Mandiant were all in attendance. The U.S. Department of Justice has charged a Ukrainian national over his alleged role in something called Raccoon Infostealer. 26-year-old Mark Sokolovsky is accused of being a key administrator of the malware that vacuums up personal information, including email addresses, identification numbers, bank account, and cryptocurrency information. Sokolovsky, who allegedly goes by the online moniker Raccoon Stealer, is facing charges including conspiracy to commit computer fraud, wire fraud, money laundering, and identity theft. If found guilty, he could face up to 20 years in prison. And finally, the Federal Communications Commission approved new rules aimed at protecting emergency and wireless alert systems from cyber threats. Operators of public warning systems will be required to report breaches within 72 hours of their happening. The rules also require participants to annually certify that they have a cybersecurity risk management plan in place and have installed the most recent security updates to systems. The FCC said it tested the emergency systems a few months ago and found that more than 5,000 devices relied on outdated software. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors. Darren Ancrum is our fact-checker. And Ben Levingston composes our theme and other music in the episode. Kendra Hanna is our intern. A special thanks this week to editor Audrey Quinn. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And connect with us by email, clickhere at or on our website at clickhereshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Reston, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. 
You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.